Good morning. Good morning is the polite way of saying sit down. <clears throat> you know, it would be, it, uh, I, I have often said, uh, I would not trade my problems with any of my colleagues unless God told me I had to. One of my problems is that our congregation is so friendly and loves each other so much that they will not sit down and shut up when it's time for me to start preaching. So I'm thankful for the fact that uh, every once in a while I need to give this sort of admonition. Uh, two things uh, before I start. First, um, I, I really do, I really would covet your prayers as we go into this next, really this next few weeks is going to be pretty intense in terms of our sorting out some details of this coming arrangement. If you're, if you're new here, uh, we were invited some years ago into a partnership with the Episcopal Church where basically we're going to help them to plant a new congregation. And uh, it looks like the details of this are, are about to kind of get set in some concrete. Um, so uh, I'm excited about this. We're excited about the prospects, and we're excited about the fact that we're finally going to be moving on. For, for a long time, we've been sort of holding our future loosely, uh, trusting that God would show us where, where we're supposed to go next, and we feel like this is now happening. And the idea of holding something loosely, it's kind of like the, 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 the same reason you open your mouth is to open it, to close it down on something solid. Right, you know, same reason. You know, people talk about being open-minded, but the idea of being open-minded is like, you know, the idea of being open-mouthed. You're supposed to eventually close it on something solid, not just stand there looking like an idiot. Um, and uh, so we haven't necessarily been feeling like idiots, but I think we've been feeling like, okay, we're eager at some point to grab hold of what we're supposed to be doing, and uh, we think that that this is uh, starting to congeal. So. Um, Looking forward to, uh, to sharing that, looking forward to answering whatever questions uh, you all have, and uh, uh, looking forward to, to moving forward with this. It's going to be a very exciting time. Please do pray for me. Uh, you know, always, I do hope you pray that I will not say something stupid in engaging with people that have the authority to make things really good or bad for us. Uh, but uh, I'm, I've, I've, it's been a great uh, working relationship with, uh, with the folks down in... Uh, on, on East University Parkway, and I'm hoping that that can continue. The second announcement, this will be a PG-13 rated sermon. So, um, Anna, you'll want to close baby Julia's ears, I think, for some of this. Um, again, not, not due to any prurient interest, but because it's the nature of the text. Our, our thing here at New Hope is that when, when we open the Word of God, we, we will look at the Word of God that God's given us, not what we might prefer to it to be, prefer it to be. And sometimes... Uh, we read things that we would prefer would be much more polite. What we're going to be looking at this morning is something that uh, many faithful commentators over the ages thought completely impossible. Some, uh, some of the rabbis said, well, well what, what happens in the first couple of chapters of Hosea couldn't really have actually been what God said to do. I mean, this must have been a, a dream, right? Hosea must have had a dream that he was told to do this, this awful thing, and then he wrote it down as though it had happened, but it was just a dream. This wouldn't, God wouldn't have actually had a prophet do this. Other commentators were even horrified that God would give his prophet a dream that he would do this sort of thing, so it must be simply figurative. Uh, but as we've been talking about, it, it, it makes more sense to understand this as Hosea's story of what really happened to him. 
Hence the title of our series. You want me to do what? So the word of Yahweh that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, when Yahweh began to speak through Hosea, Yahweh said to him, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, because the land is guilty of the vilest harlotry and departing from Yahweh. Now, at the very beginning of this book, your translations may be unhelpful to you. If you have in front of you the old NIV, like I have here, uh, it says, Yahweh said to him, go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from Yahweh, which could be the meaning of it, but the Hebrew word there in all three cases is the same one. It's a nunim. God says to Hosea, take to yourself an ashet zanunim. Sometimes this is translated an unfaithful wife. Sometimes it's translated a, a promiscuous wife. Sometimes it's simply translated, take to yourself a prostitute. Sometimes it's translated as here an adulterous wife. So we need to first try to figure out what exactly is it that God told Hosea to do. And, and I think the very, before I even do that, I need to talk a bit about this idea of zanunim and, and prostitution. It's sometimes been referred to as the world's oldest profession. Uh, and this is not unsupported by the data. I mean, basically, as far back as you go, in the archaeological record, uh, when there are laws written about how people have to conduct themselves, prostitution is mentioned. If you ever read the Epic of Gilgamesh, maybe back in high school or college, uh, or you know, just for recreation, uh, some of us would. Um, it's, it's good stories. Uh, you know, there, there's a prostitute who shows up in, 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 in Torah, in Genesis, right? We have a story of, of Tamar, Judah's should-have-been daughter-in-law, uh, who placed herself in the role of a prostitute in order to uh, basically shame her should-have-been father-in-law into coming through on the agreement he made. Uh, she's not introduced in the story as some radical novelty, but he says, hey, where's that uh, cultic prostitute that was here to the people? As though they would know exactly what he was talking about and not find it remarkable that somebody would ask because they knew exactly what he was talking about and it was not remarkable. It's basically presupposed. Now, that doesn't mean that prostitution is approved of in Torah. Uh, it, it is not something that uh, people are encouraged to do and, and in fact, uh, it, is, it is something that's, that's discouraged, but the, the fact that there would be prostitution is recognized as, as a reality that would likely be going on. Different kinds of prostitution uh, in the ancient Near East, much uh, in many cultures you would have found cultic prostitution or temple or shrine prostitution. Sometimes these would have been uh, an initiatory rite. Uh, a woman, before she was actually married, might uh, be expected to go through uh, a cycle of service in the temple of the god or the goddess as uh, a as a fertility rite in some cultures, um, in others cultic prostitution was a career, and uh, the way in which prostitution would have been practiced would have been in, in concert 
with the religious rites of that culture. But then, of course, there was garden variety prostitution, not linked to any particular religious activity. This was not usually a career goal for most people. Most people who ended up in prostitution, male or female, didn't aspire to this as they were growing up. This is something that they found themselves forced into, whether they were driven to it by poverty and desperation, or whether, as is often the case even now, they were sold into it, perhaps to settle the debts of their parents or even to satisfy their lifestyle interests. And I won't get into this now, but the reality today of human trafficking is that this is going on as much as it ever did, if not more. But we should note, too, that Scripture, both in the Old and New Testaments, even as it sees prostitution as something that is not to be desired and it's not something to embrace, Scripture also tends to show great compassion and respect for those who have been caught up in it. You'll remember the beginning of Joshua. Anybody here from uh, Kendall's House Church? I know you dwelt longingly in uh, Joshua. Uh, Who's the first character that we encounter who's really interesting in the book of Joshua after Joshua himself? Rahab. Rahab. And Rahab is a prostitute. In fact, she's probably a madam. Rahab has her, her brothel there on the, uh, in the walls of Jericho. And what does Rahab do? Guys, the spies from Israel show up, and she says, yeah, we heard about you, and we heard about your God, and we're all quaking in our boots. Could we perhaps make an arrangement that would spare my family and me? And they work it out. And then Rahab, in fact, in time, ends up in the genealogy of Jesus. Yeah. So Jesus has prostitution in his own lineage. And Jesus, we see in the story in in Luke, in chapter 7, maybe well familiar to you, where Jesus is dining at the home of, of a very, very respectable citizen. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him and his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, hey, Simon, I've got something to tell you. All right, tell me, teacher, he said. So two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. But neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose it's the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Yeah, you've judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. You didn't extend to me the basics of hospitality. But she wet my feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, hasn't stopped kissing my feet. It's starting to tickle, in fact. You didn't put any oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, Her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. 
And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus developed the reputation of being a drunkard and a glutton. He was looked down on in polite society because he hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors, hung out with all the wrong sort. So, if God had in fact said to Hosea, go down and find a prostitute and say, how much for the rest of my life? That would be shocking. We know, of course, that God does not permit priests. We know from Leviticus, he doesn't permit priests to marry prostitutes. He doesn't allow them to have their daughters become prostitutes. Hosea is not a priest. He's a prophet. Some prophets were priests. Ezekiel was, but Hosea is not. But yeah, if, if God had said to Hosea, yes, I want you to find a woman who is an active prostitute in business and go marry her, that would have been tough. But I think what God did ask Hosea to do, what is more likely is the case as we read this, was tougher still. God says to Hosea, take to yourself an Eshet Znunim, a wife of harlotry, adultery, prostitution, promiscuity, sexual immorality, and you're going to have children of Zanunim, of harlotry, because the land is guilty of Zanunim. This language alone makes me think it's unlikely that God said marry a woman who is a prostitute, because the children, of course, were the product of union with a person who was impure sexually. They were not themselves prostitutes. But no, God says... Marry somebody who's going to break your heart. That could be retrospective. It could be that this story was written after the fact, was written later on after Hosea realized what had happened when he married this woman that he thought was going to be the woman of his dreams and the love of his life, and then he finds out that she was unfaithful. It could be retrospective, but it probably isn't. As I read this text, I think it's more likely that Hosea went into this with his eyes wide open. Reshet Zanunim describes the character of Hosea's wife, not so much the behavior that she was already involved in, but the kind of person that she was. So when Yahweh began to speak through Hosea, Yahweh said to him, go, take to yourself an Eshet Zanunim and children of Zanunim because the land is guilty of the vilest Zanunim and departing from Yahweh. And so he married Gomer, the daughter of Debliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then Yahweh said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. And that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. We'll get back to this a little bit later in the series, but you remember from the very first uh, the first sermon in the series, the, the history behind this. Hosea is writing this at a time where the, the uh, uh, monarchy in the northern kingdom of Israel is, is uh, managing to, uh, to run itself into the ground. And part of the awful history of the closing uh, 
years of the closing decades of that dynasty is palace coups and uh, awful slaughter. So Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Note, by the way, doesn't say Gomer bore him a daughter. She gave birth to a daughter. The implication here is that child one was Hosea's, but two and three, he may well have not been the baby daddy. And the Lord said to Hosea, call her lo ruchamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, but, or by horses and horsemen, but by Yahweh their God. And after she'd weaned lo ruchamah, Gomer had another son. And Yahweh said, call him lo ami, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited, and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. So save your brothers, my people. And of your sisters, my loved one. You kind of get whiplash reading that, don't you? I mean, God is laying out this condemnation. He's laying out this objection against his people. Some even see in this legal language that might be used in a lawsuit. But then, even after he lays out this critique, he then says, nevertheless, the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore. There's this promise of redemption as well. Well, that's the prose section. In chapter 2, we get this in poetry. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Incidentally, this is not... uh, There are some things we read in Scripture that are directed directly to us that we're supposed to apply directly. There are things we read in Scripture where we're supposed to go and do likewise. There are things we read in Scripture we're supposed to go and do otherwise. We see somebody do something really dumb or vile or evil, and we're supposed to avoid doing that. And then there are just the things that God has told particular people to do at particular times. Uh, It is not, generally speaking, a good idea in attempting to resolve uh, marital disputes to drag the children into it and get them to take sides. Look at this as a literary device. When Hosea says, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts lest I strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. This is not language where we're talking naked as in alluring. We're talking naked as in ashamed, naked as in exposed. I'll make her like a desert. I'll turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful. And has conceived them in disgrace. 
She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Here, Gomer is being described as an unfaithful wife who has gone after other men. Why? Because they provided for her the things that she wanted. Food, water, wool, linen, oil, drink. And God says, if that's the kind of person you are, if you're trading affection for material things, what does that make you? Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I'll wall her in so that she can't find her way. She'll chase after her lovers but not catch them. She'll look for them but not find them. And then she'll say, well, I guess I'll go back to my husband as at first because I was better off then than I am now. But she didn't know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold which they use for Baal. And here you get this image that we find throughout the prophets. We especially see this in Hosea and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We get a little taste of it in, in Micah and Isaiah too, where idolatry is portrayed as adultery, where God's relationship between him and the nation that he has called is portrayed as being like a marriage, and where the people's unfaithfulness to him is being portrayed as adultery, as a wife leaving her true husband to chase after lovers. In this case, Baal, Canaanite fertility god, but there were all kinds of gods and goddesses that the people were drawn to. And God says, when you chase after idols, it's like you're being unfaithful to me. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it's ready. I'll take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her nakedness. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I'll stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed feasts. And again, we'll talk about this later on in the series, the ways in which religion can be the very thing that keeps you from worshiping God truly. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I'll make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baalim when she decked herself with rings and jewelry. She went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares Yahweh. The language is subtle and it's easier to see in the Hebrew, but when, he, when Hosea says in verse 8 of chapter 2, she hasn't known, you may have it translated as she has not acknowledged or realized that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil. This, this word for knowing is the same word that we find when in Genesis it says in the old King James, and Adam knew his wife 
and she conceived. This is a knowledge that is intimate. It is a word, this word for knowing is used to describe sexual intimacy. But this kind of knowledge that's being portrayed here throughout the book of Hosea is not one of knowing stuff about God or knowing things relevant to God. It's knowing God. Knowing God. Being in a real relationship. You may remember in the lovely language in the Messiah, right? Take his yoke upon you and learn of him, for he is meek and lowly of heart. When, when we read, take his yoke upon you and learn of him, it doesn't mean take his yoke upon you and, and study up the timeline of when Jesus stood where. It doesn't mean learn the names of all the kings and understand the co-regencies. There's use in knowing stuff about God and about Jesus and about Scripture, but it's not about filling your heads with a bunch of facts. This kind of knowledge that we're called to is a deep and an intimate and a personal knowledge. It's characterized here as a personal knowledge between an entire people, an entire community and their God. But that's the kind of knowledge that God wants. That's the kind of intimacy he wants with his people. And so when he says, I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals, she decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot. Yahweh is talking about a, an emotional abandonment. He's talking about adultery, not just of physical activity. He's talking about a person who has turned her back on her husband. An Eshet Zanunim who has decided to sell herself to those from whom she thinks she can get a better offer, even though, as he says, you know, he bought you that bracelet from Smythe and had it put on my charge account. Even though I was the one. She didn't know. And even more shocking, if this were possible, than God calling Hosea to marry a woman who is unfaithful, a woman who is a harlot, a woman who has the character of someone who will sell herself willingly, not someone who is driven into this, but someone who will willingly leave her husband to go after somebody she thinks is going to hook her up better is what God calls Hosea to do next. And we'll get to that next week. But for now, another quote from our friend Abraham Joshua Heschel, the great Jewish philosopher, right, when, he, when he writes about this in his book, The Prophets, he says, as time went by, Hosea became aware of the fact that his personal fate was a mirror of the divine pathos, that his sorrow echoed the sorrow of God. 
in this fellow suffering as an act of sympathy with the divine pathos. The prophet probably saw the meaning of the marriage which he had contracted at the divine behest. The marriage of Hosea was no symbolic representation of real facts, no act of recreating or repeating events in the history of Israel or experiences in the inner life of God. Its meaning wasn't objective, it wasn't inherent in the marriage, but subjective, evocative. Only by living through in his own life what the divine consort of Israel experienced was the prophet able to attain sympathy for the divine situation. The marriage was a lesson, an illustration, rather than a symbol or a sacrament. Its purpose was not to demonstrate divine attitudes to the people, but to educate Hosea himself in the understanding of divine sensibility. The tragic disturbance in the relationship between God and Israel must have determined decisively Hosea's attitude and outlook. Hosea, who again and again emphasized the unchanging devotion of God to Israel, was not simply an advocate of the people. His mind was powerfully affected by the embitterment of God, echoed in his own sympathetic experience. Let's pray. God, in this book that you inspired your prophet Hosea to write, you show us a glimpse of what it means to you when we are unfaithful. You show us in dramatic and painful way just what it is when we chase after other things, when we give our devotion to anything other than you, when we forget you and we put our love elsewhere. We pray that we would be people who take to heart this reality and who seek to live lives that are devoted rather than unfaithful to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.